Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Alarm 2, Engine 22, Rescue 22, Engine 22, Rescue 22. Please respond to 7440 Jim McDowell Road Northwest. 24 Delta 1, got a 24-year-old female, imminent delivery. That's imminent delivery. 7440 Jim McDowell Road Northwest, 24 Delta 1, Engine 22, Rescue 22. Firebox is 22-6429. 24-year-old female, imminent delivery, Engine 22, Rescue 22. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AFR Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about OB emergencies with Dr. Pruitt. Hello, Captain West. How you doing? Glad to be back. This is, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with OB, so we'll get into all the details as we go on in this episode. We delivered three babies a month ago. All oh, wow. healthy, healthy, happy babies. I'm awesome. proud of everybody out there. Cool. That's yeah. Exciting. Okay, so it seems like in the ER that you guys just assume that every woman's pregnant you know if they're like i got a headache here are you pregnant i've got abdominal pain i bet you're pregnant uh i've been weak for the for the past few days pregnant probably pregnant okay so it seems like you always don't believe anybody until uh until it's proven otherwise i'd say we trust but verify trust but verify okay um, that's gonna the answer to that question whether or not they're pregnant is really gonna make a pretty big difference in their treatment and the um, the workup that they get. Okay, so there could be a chance that they already know they're pregnant, and you can kind of tell how informed they are and what kind of prenatal care they're getting. But even if they say they're not pregnant, they could just not know it yet. Absolutely. Okay, so we're gonna go down the path of maybe this uh, woman doesn't know she's pregnant yet and talk about some of the early uh, first trimester problems that you might see out there in the field. So let's start with uh, just uh, extreme nausea and vomiting that just started over the past week. Okay, Um, I would approach a young childbearing age female with nausea and vomiting just like I would um, probably any other nausea and vomiting patient, ask about pain, check their vital signs, um, be concerned about um, volume status, dehydration, um, electrolyte abnormalities, that kind of thing. And then obviously you want to ask the question, could you be pregnant? Mm. Okay, so what if they don't know or they're just like, oh, I don't know. Some things I guess that you could help would be um, asking when the last menstrual period was um, might help, but frequently the answer to that is that some women's menstrual periods are irregular and they aren't able to give you a really good answer. So sometimes it's just hard to tell in the field without a test. That's why in the hospital we just we check okay. pretty frequently. All right, and then with nausea and vomiting, uh, your PowerPoint, you had like an extreme example of that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so... It's normal to have a little bit of morning sickness early in pregnancy where you get a little nauseated typically in the morning. That's how it gets its name, but it can really be any time throughout the day. Um, But when that kind of goes to the next level, like a little longer in the pregnancy into the second trimester or vomiting to the point that the mom is losing a significant amount of weight or there's profound electrolyte abnormalities that come with all the vomiting, that's when it moves into something called hyperemesis gravidarum. And that's just a fancy word for a whole lot of vomiting in pregnancy. (laughs) 
Okay. So that's a, just an extreme level. It's, it's kind of an extreme level. It's not that uncommon. Um, a lot of times these ladies will be working closely with their obstetrician and be at home on um, antiemetics. Usually Zofran is fairly safe in pregnancy. But yeah, you need to be really worried about possible electrolyte abnormalities with them. Sometimes it's so bad they need to be hospitalized to get nutrition through an IV because they literally are not able to to keep any nutrients inside. And that's, as we all know, very important for fetal development. Yeah. All right. Another problem that can happen early on in pregnancy would be a ectopic pregnancy. Yes. Um, this is kind of the big feared life-threatening emergency that can masquerade as a lot of different things in young childbearing age females. Um, typically, it presents with pelvic pain, usually on one side or the other. It can mimic appendicitis, uh, very bad lower quadrant abdominal pain, plus or minus vaginal bleeding. Not really present that often, though. More uh, nausea, vomiting, terrible pain is what you'll see with a with a young female who may or may not know when her last menstrual period was, may or may not know that she's pregnant. Um, so when that ruptures is when it becomes uh, life-threatening? Yes. So an ectopic pregnancy is actually a pregnancy that occurs outside of the uterus. So it can occur inside the abdomen. It can occur in the fallopian tube. It can even occur like in the cervix. It's just an abnormally implanted embryo. And as that embryo does what it does and it starts to grow, um, if it gets too large in a place where it's not supposed to be, it can rupture the surrounding blood vessels and cause life-threatening hemorrhage. And do you know how common is it to um, have an ectopic pregnancy versus how often does it get to that point where it causes that life-threatening hemorrhage? Um, is it noticed early enough most of the time? The ones I've seen, I've probably had two that were at the point that the, the pregnancy was far enough along to cause a life-threatening hemorrhage. Typically, they're caught pretty early. They do, um, again, because it's the big feared complication, women who present with abdominal pain and nausea, vomiting, they get worked up very early for ectopic, and typically we're starting to find them earlier. I think where it where it's more of a life-threatening problem would be maybe in the third world where there's not as easy access to early ultrasounds and things to confirm an intrauterine pregnancy, but they absolutely still happen here. Okay. All right, and then the last one we're gonna talk about uh, early on in the pregnancy would be a miscarriage. So can you talk about why these occur? Um, they're more common than people realize. I think a lot of, um, we see a lot of these, unfortunately, in the emergency department, and it's pretty devastating for families sometimes. Um, and I think they feel very alone, but because people just don't talk about it very much. Um, but it, if you look at the statistics, they happen almost in one out of every four early pregnancies. And usually it's no fault of anybody's. It's just um, genetics and the way that the cells are dividing. And typically, um, as these embryos are studied, there's usually some chromosomal abnormality that would have been uniformly fatal. And so it just leads to a, um, an embryo that can't develop correctly. Okay. But this will present with um, abdominal pain and usually vaginal bleeding and some pretty severe cramping depending on how far along. But usually it happens within 
the first it's first trimester usually but most of them happen within the first like six to eight weeks and there might be some like clumps in the toilet or something not just vaginal bleeding but a little bit different maybe yes sometimes there's bigger clots that's what causes the cramping and then um, some tissue as well depending on how far along the the fetal development has progressed and then what what needs to happen to this patient in the ER Um, so they get a pretty thorough evaluation we'll still get an ultrasound um, one to see the stage of the miscarriage so um, whether it's we call it threatened so you can see it intrauterine pregnancy maybe without a heartbeat or something like that whereas if they're starting to pass products of conception um, if there's anything retained we monitor for the amount of vaginal bleeding because I've seen ladies having a miscarriage that lose a profound amount of blood and end up needing a transfusion and sometimes they need to go to the operating room to help facilitate or expedite the miscarriage um, so that they don't lose any more blood. It's called a DNC. Okay. All right. So with these examples and with everybody that we're going to talk about going forward, uh, they have the common thing or one thing in common being that they're all pregnant. So. A little refresher for all of us in layman's terms, but just for all the uh, firefighters in this department, let's have the uh, doctor's version of the birds and the bees. So what's happening from the, you know, starting with the egg being released until uh, let's stop just before, say, the delivery process? Okay. Um, So from the female perspective, the menstrual cycle is all about ovulation. And so there's... um, daily changes in hormones that are affecting the release of an egg um, that can be fertilized and that's the ovulation process. Once that egg is released, that's when it can be fertilized by a sperm. If that happens, the that usually happens outside of the fallopian tube, the fertilized egg will then travel through the fallopian tube into the uterus, implant in the uterine wall where it can start to establish blood vessels and nourishment for an eventual development of a placenta that will be the organ that provides the developing fetus with all the nutrients and things that it needs to grow and develop. Most of the um, fetal organs, we call it organogenesis, most of the critical development of this fetus is going to happen within the first 10 weeks. Um, which is a little bit tough because that's when you don't you want to be really careful about what you're eating or medications you're taking because that can all affect fetal development but that's also typically the time frame when a lot of women don't realize they're pregnant so and then over the rest of the nine months the um, fetus just continues to grow and develop and eventually get ready to be born and live on its own all right i think that's a quick enough wrap up so Some other things that we might not be as familiar with in the fire department would be some of the birth control methods. So if a patient tells us that they have an IUD or they've received a depo shot or they're on birth control, had their tubes tied, had a hysterectomy, all of these things, uh, some of us may not be as familiar with what's going on there. So can we talk about those different birth control options and what's happening to prevent pregnancy? Sure. Um, 
let's see, let's start with the easy ones. So maybe a tubal ligation or a hysterectomy. If the patient tells you they've had a hysterectomy, that means they have no uterus, which means there's, they're not gonna be able to get pregnant. Um, if they tell you they've had a tubal ligation, what that means is they could still have a uterus, but those fallopian tubes where the, the fertilized egg would travel to get into the uterus, they've been clamped or cut. And so there's no physical way for a fertilized egg to travel to the uterus, and that patient should not be able to get pregnant either. As we're moving down the list of better birth control options, the IUD is a physical device that goes inside the uterus and mechanically disrupts any attempts of a fertilized egg to implant in the uterus. And so it's a pretty reliable form of birth control um, and is very effective. And then as you start to get into the other forms, the depo shot or maybe birth control pills, they're a little bit more reliant on patient compliance. So depo shots you need to get every couple of months and sometimes ladies might say, oh, I get the depo shot, but maybe their last shot was a year ago. It might not be as effective anymore. Same thing with birth control pills. They might tell you that they're taking pills, but all it takes is missing a day or two and you can still potentially get pregnant. So and just not in, as foolproof. in general, how do those work on the hormones? And um, The depo shot and the birth control pills, um, they it's all about hormones and regulating that ovulatory cycle. And they, they mess, usually um, can mess with like follicle stimulating hormone, which regulates the release of the egg to where the egg won't be released and then can't get fertilized. Okay. All right. So uh, we, we already talked about some of like the early pregnancy problems, but once that belly is getting bigger and this woman's starting to show, chances are going to increase that she, now she knows that she's pregnant. So she uh, will probably, you know, go to the doctor at some point. Um, if we show up to the scene and the woman knows that she's pregnant, what are some of the follow-up questions that we should be asking her? Okay. I always like to know depending how far along well how far along in the pregnancy is she and you can ask that by maybe asking the due date if she's had any prenatal care um, and confirmed intrauterine pregnancy is a big deal too right because she could still have potentially an ectopic so it's always nice to know that she's got some confirmation that that pregnancy is where it should be if she's ever been pregnant before and then if, um, depending how far along she is, if she's got any known complications with this pregnancy, so maybe gestational diabetes or preeclampsia, high blood pressure, thyroid problems can be more typical in pregnancy. So just a good medical history. And then some important questions to ask about the pregnancy as well. And this can vary widely, I bet. I, I've spoken with some women and they, they know everything about their baby. They've had, you know, frequent ultrasounds and they've got it down better than I do. And then you can imagine that there's some others out there that haven't had prenatal care and aren't really sure what's going on in their body. Right. Um, there's a wide spectrum of that. And uh, I think it helps us as, as pre-hospital providers um, just kind of understand what, what kind of risks or things we need to think about in terms of maybe not be as worried about things with, with patients that have really good prenatal care and knows absolutely everything. Whereas if you have a big question mark over this pregnancy, whether it's even in the right place or um, 
any complications if this lady hasn't been receiving any prenatal care. There, there's a whole lot um, more potential to investigate possible problems why she's calling 911. Okay. Um, some other terms that we might not know as much about. So we've got like fundal height and then the gravita and para. Can you talk about those two mm-hmm. things for me? Um, fundal height is just kind of a, a quick and relatively easy way to estimate a gestational age. So let's say you're called to an unresponsive female and there's no one around to provide any history for you, but she looks like she's pregnant and you're trying to decide in the back of your mind, you're like, well, maybe am I going to have to deliver this baby? How far along are we? You can measure the, if you, and it actually takes a measuring tape, but, um, to do it precisely, but you can measure from the top of the pubic symphysis to where you can feel the top of the uterus. And you know that if the uterus is right about the the height of the belly button, that that pregnancy is right about 20 weeks. And if you add a centimeter higher than the belly button for each week, you can estimate how many weeks pregnant that lady is by how high you can feel the uterus in her abdomen. Okay, so if we're documenting this and say the person knows that she's 24 weeks along and now as we're going through our report and we assess, you know, get down to the abdomen, how should we describe this belly, you know, on the report? Should we just say something like the fundus is above the... the Above the umbilicus, I think would be perfect. If you want to say if she's 24 weeks, she theoretically should be four centimeters higher than the umbilicus. And so if you want to measure it, that's fine. She might think it's a little bit funny, but if I think a way to chart it that would be very acceptable would just be fundus is palpable above the umbilicus. Okay, and then what would we say if she's 38 weeks? Um, you could say um, gravid abdomen would be fine. Um, appears to be stated gestational age, or you could actually measure or sometimes by your, the time you're that late in pregnancy, it's almost up to the xiphoid process. And you can say um, fundus measures approximately 38 centimeters if you okay. want to measure. All right. And then some other terminology, the gravita and para. Can you remind people out there which one means? So G's and P's. Um, the way I remember it, and it's silly, but I remember that P is for parent. So how many deliveries have you actually had past 20 weeks? That would make you a parent, right? So your P's are your number of deliveries that are viable. And then your G's are how many times you've actually been pregnant. So say you have a pregnant female that has two living children and has never had a miscarriage, but she's pregnant now. She would be a G3 because she's got one baby on the inside and a P two because she's actually delivered two babies okay and then moving on to some other questions that we might ask for somebody say she's 30 weeks along what other information do we need to gather if we're getting called out to that if she's having um if it's like a 24 charlie or something Yes. Okay. Um, the questions, there's always four that I ask, um, and it kind of just helps you figure out how quickly you're going to need to move and how soon is this delivery going to happen. One would be, is your water broken? Um, another would be, is there any vaginal bleeding? 
um, if you're feeling fetal movement, usually ladies can start to feel baby move around 20 weeks. Sometimes if it's their first pregnancy, they might not recognize that they're feeling fetal movement, so it might be a little bit later in a lady in her first pregnancy, but usually it happens around 20 weeks. They should be able to feel fetal movement. And then um, how far apart are the contractions? And answers to all of those questions will help you help you figure out how fast you need to move or what you need to worry about. All right, so I wanted to walk through a couple examples. So imagine that we got dispatch out to a woman who's 28 weeks along. She's complaining of severe abdominal pain. There's no vaginal bleeding, and she was in a fender bender yesterday. Mm. What would you be suspicious of in this I person? I would be very worried about possible placental abruption. Um, sometimes even low impact trauma can cause that placenta to disrupt from the uterine wall and develop a significant amount of bleeding that might not be immediately ascertainable just by vital signs but can cause a fair amount of pain. Okay, so placenta abruption, that means the placenta has ripped away from the uterus? From the uterine wall and typically is bleeding or forming some sort of hematoma. And that can be from a small amount of bleeding all the way to life-threatening bleeding. And you just can't tell until you get an ultrasound and assess that, that fetus for any signs of distress. Will, the, will, the, will there be any vaginal bleeding? Not necessarily. Um, sometimes that clot can form in the uterine wall and stay right between the placenta and the uterus and you don't necessarily see any vaginal bleeding. You can, but it's not always that typical. Okay, and then uh, looking through our guidelines, what's significant about the 28 weeks of gestation? So if that would mean that could potentially be a viable pregnancy. And that patient, if they did have to deliver at 28 weeks, it would be incredibly early, but it would need NICU. So it would need a very high level of critical care for the baby once it was born. Okay, so our NICU facilities in the city are Press Downtown, UNM, Rust, and Women's. That's correct. Okay, and moving on, we're going to talk about a 34-week pregnant woman with heavy vaginal bleeding. There's no abdominal pain. Um, she's already had, let's see, this would be uh, Gravita 2, Para 1, and her first child was delivered via C-section. Okay, um, so with heavy vaginal bleeding and no pain, um, I would really want to know if she's had any prenatal care and know where her placenta is lying because I would be really worried about placenta previa, which simply put just means that the placenta is overlying the cervical os or the cervical opening and as contractions start to happen um, it can cause a lot of bleeding there and it'll be hard for the baby to actually get out because the placenta is in the way. Okay, and what do we need to do with this? vaginal bleeding, do we need to perform any kind of an inspection? I wouldn't unless the lady feels like there's going to be an imminent delivery and she'll be able to tell you if she's feeling the need to push or if she's had a gush, um, well, she's bleeding so you won't see a gush of fluid, but depending how close her contractions are, if you feel there's an imminent delivery, you can check, but not necessarily, you don't have to. Okay, okay and then I wanted to talk about another patient this woman is 31 weeks pregnant. She's complaining of a severe headache. She has not had prenatal care. And when you start checking her out, you see that her blood pressure is 156 over 112. 
Um, I would be worried about preeclampsia with her. Okay, so now in our guidelines, it's uh, it's got some different criteria for, you know, when are we going to actually treat this preeclampsia? So can you talk about um, the difference between the blood pressures or some of the signs and symptoms and when we're going to want to go ahead and treat that patient? Yeah, so preeclampsia has to do with blood pressures being too high in pregnancy. What you're looking for is a systolic over 160 or a diastolic over 110. Or sometimes in clinic, they already know that they have it. So in clinic, if they have repeated blood pressures twice on two occasions with a systolic greater than 140 or a diastolic greater than 90, um, they'll typically be on some sort of blood pressure medication. But if we find them in the field with a blood pressure that's systolic greater than 160 or diastolic greater than 110, and they're complaining of the associated symptoms, so headache, peripheral edema, or swelling. They, they're not going to be able to tell you they have protein in their urine, but they might have known from a previous doctor's visit. Changes in their vision, changes in their mental status. If you have the blood pressure plus anything else, then I would go ahead and, um, and treat that with magnesium. Okay, and so our dose is going to be two grams of mag over 10 minutes. And it, it has in there, again, it's pretty specific. So if it's systolic above 140 or their diastolic's above 90, and then they have two of those signs and symptoms of like severe headache or vision changes, abdominal pain, um, it says to go ahead and give the two grams at that time. And then it also has a separate case where say there it's only the blood pressure. Now, how do you feel about that? Say the blood pressure was 180 over 120. Yeah, so you still have your systolics higher than the threshold, and so is your diastolic. At the end of the day, if this patient is painting a picture for you of preeclampsia, you're really just giving her magnesium, and that's just an elemental thing. It's not going to cause harm. The thing to watch out for it would be, one, it lowers blood pressure, and two, it might, in large doses, cause a little bit of respiratory depression, but really with two grams, that's not going to happen. We give two grams to her respiratory patients all the time. So there's not much downside and it could be protective for the mother and for the baby. Um, so if she's painting a picture for you and you're highly suspicious of preeclampsia, um, I would go ahead and treat. One thing I think is important to note here is that preeclampsia can occur up to almost two months after the baby's actually born. So if you ever get called to a young adult female who um, is complaining of headache or super high blood pressure or even seizing and you see a little baby there, remember to consider that even though that baby is already out, this can still be preeclampsia or eclampsia and would need the same treatment. Okay. And now if we go from that preeclampsia to uh, actual seizure, which is what makes it now eclampsia, what is our treatment going to be for that? So just like any seizure, you want to stop the seizure. So I would start with a benzo first. Um, if you don't have time to get an IV, you can do IM versed. And then um, if that's not working or she's unresponsive, there's always the IO option as well. Once you get the versed on board, then I would follow that with a magnesium. Okay, so it's always going to be follow up with the magnesium. Um, even say the the versed worked and now the the seizure is stopped. If she is pregnant and has had a seizure, that's eclampsia by definition, and I would still give her the magnesium to, okay. to treat the underlying 
the likely underlying cause. Okay. And in that person, again, once that pregnant woman starts seizing, that's going to be four grams over 10 minutes. Um, there's also a note in our guidelines about, you know, giving it uh, five grams IM. And it, it said, you know, if you do that, you're only going to want to give a max of three cc's per site. So now you're going to have to give that uh, five grams in four different locations. How do you feel about that, that option? Would, that would be a lot of shots. I mean, you do want to get the magnesium in, but I think if I'm at that point, I would consider, and I can't get an IV, I would strongly consider just doing an IO. Okay, again, going to be an unconscious yeah. person, so the, the pain is not going to be an issue for them. Okay. All right, so we're going to call this uh, part one of the OB emergencies, and so far we've covered some of the first trimester issues, some of the later issues, and then we'll come back with an episode talking about the complications of the delivery process. Sounds good. Okay. okay. We'll talk to you on the next episode. All right. Thank you.